It is so, oh, wow, that was loud. <laughs> it is so good to be back. Linda and I spent a week in Colorado. The weather was beautiful. The, the changing of the leaves was gorgeous. We wanted to stay, but two things got us back. Number one, we wanted to see you. Number two, the money ran out. <laughs> and I'll let you guess which had the greater influence. We are glad to be back, and it's, it's wonderful to be able just with our brothers and sisters to worship our God. What a wonderful thing it is to have musicians and singers lead us to the throne week by week. And what a passage our church has been reading and studying this week. You know, John chapter 20, I mean, part of it last week, now this week, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus and and this bursting forth of a whole new day. But what struck me this last week in the passage that many are studying in their life groups this Sunday is that discordant note where Thomas, who wasn't there among the disciples when Jesus first appeared to them, had all sorts of questions, even doubts, when he heard from them about the appearance of Jesus. He wasn't going to believe the resurrection just because somebody said it to him. Let me read to you his words. It says in the middle of verse 25, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. <laughs> then he said to Thomas, Can you imagine? I mean, he's talking to the whole group, and then he turns right at Thomas. You can imagine. You can imagine how he felt at that moment. He knew something was coming. So he turns to Thomas. He says, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Now, I don't want to talk about Thomas per se in this message, but I do want to talk about doubt, or I should say the relationship of faith and doubt, because in the case of Thomas, you see a man who is a believer and also a doubter. It's not he's one or the other. He's a follower of Jesus who at the end of this episode falls down before Jesus and says in a climactic statement in the Gospel of John, my Lord and my God. I mean, this, this man who doubted was a believer who sees more clearly into who Jesus is than anyone else before this in the Gospel of John. My Lord and my God. Thomas is a believer, but he's also a doubter. And in that, he's like many, many of us. Now, not everyone struggles with doubt, but many Christians do, which is, which is surprising, I think, because many people outside the church, they criticize Christians for being dogmatists. They think Christians believe they have all the answers. And I think the reason for that is because dogmatists are always preaching. Dogmatists are all about exclamation points. They'll tell you what they think because they know what they think. But doubters are quiet. They hold back. They keep it to themselves. 
in life groups, discussions happen, and they think, you know, I'm not sure I can really believe that, but they don't, they don't want to be on the outskirts of the group. They don't want to be judged by anyone, so they hold it back, and sometimes they begin to withdraw from the group because of it. They have this kind of silent alienation. Sometimes people who struggle with doubt end up leaving the church because they feel so, so much like they don't fit in. So doubt is a problem in the church, and maybe it's a problem that you have. It comes in lots of different forms. But it's important to understand when we talk about doubt, we're not talking about unbelief. See, unbelief is to be settled in not obeying God or believing the word of God or submitting to the truth of God. It is to be of one mind. Do you believe? No, I don't believe. That's unbelief. Then faith similarly is to be of one mind. It's to be settled in, yes, I do believe. I have confidence. So you've got those who have unbelief and those who have faith. The unbelievers are in one mind. Those who have faith are in one mind. Doubters live in two minds. Doubters go back and forth. Sometimes they feel like unbelievers, sometimes like people of faith. And that's why they feel unsettled. Now, I have to tell you, when you study the Bible... Word studies are dangerous because when you pluck out words from their context, you can misunderstand their meaning. Words have no meaning apart from context. So you have to be careful with word studies. But having said that, having said that, I want to show you the words in the New Testament that are translated doubt. Now, they're not always translated as doubt. It depends on the context. These words have... Uh, a range of meanings depending on context. But here are the words that appear in Greek, and I want to show you them because they tell us something about the nature of doubt, help us to understand what it is that we're dealing with. If you'd go ahead and put that up for me, please. You see the first word, dipsukos. It means literally to be two-souled. James uses it in chapter one of his letter, speaking of those who are double-minded. This is how you can feel like a believer and an unbeliever at the same time. It's like you're two people. You're unsettled within. Then the second word, diacrino, to discriminate or dispute. That is, you are discriminating among ideas. You're examining them. You're looking at evidence. You're reasoning it out. And maybe you enter into dispute with other people. You debate with other people as a result of your own convictions. They have different convictions, so you go back and forth. Well, when diacrino is used for doubt, it refers to that all going on in your head. You keep thinking about it. You are disputing with yourself. One moment you're thinking, oh yes, this is the truth. And then you're thinking, no, maybe not. And you're over on this side and you go back and forth and the wheels just keep turning. Then the third word, dialogizomai, it comes, our word dialogue comes from it. It means to reason, as in to reason together. You might reason with other people, but when dialogizomai is used for doubt, it means this constant reasoning in your head. Very much like the last word, the idea is that your brain won't shut down. 
You have these doubts and you try to resolve them and you reason with it and you think you've got it in place and then, and then the next day it comes back and you start back at the beginning again, trying to work it through. Have you ever been there with your doubts? The next word, meta or it means to raise aloft or suspend, as in suspend in midair. Doubt is like standing firmly in midair. When this word is used for doubt, it has that idea of the being unsettled, not having a place to stand, being anxious about it, not comfortable, not feeling like, like you have a firm grasp on the truth. And then finally, you see distazzo, to hang back or to hesitate or to waver. And so, so Jesus, when he called Peter out from the boat and he's walking on the water and Peter begins to seek, sink in the water, Jesus says, why did you doubt? This is the word he uses. You wavered, you hesitated. That's what doubt does. It's not quite sure. It, it believes and yet maybe it doesn't believe. And each of these words turn up in different places. Dialogizomai, for example, in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus is talking to the disciples, he's risen from the dead, and he says, you know, why do doubts rise in your minds? Why are you reasoning this all out as if, as if it can't be true? Here I am right in front of you. And in each one of these words, you find a certain aspect of doubt. It's to be in two minds. It's to go back and forth from believer to unbeliever. You're a believer, but it's like you go back and forth. Your mind keeps running over the same things. You feel unsettled. You can't seem to get a firm hold. There are questions that keep coming back to you. If you want a perfect picture of doubt in the New Testament, it comes from a father who is deeply concerned for his son, who appeared to have some form of epilepsy, but brought on by dark powers that had taken control of his life. He brings his son to Jesus and asks that Jesus deliver him. If you can, he said. If you can. Jesus is shocked. If you can, all things are possible to the one who believes. And you remember what the father says. I believe, help my unbelief. You see, I believe, I do have faith. Of course he had faith, he came to Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief. I don't believe. Well, I go back and forth. I believe, but I don't believe. I am in doubt. So doubt like this, it afflicts many people. It's part of the human condition, and it's not always bad. Let's, let's just say that right up front. Often doubt is the first step toward learning something. It's part of gaining an education. Would to God that many of us doubted things more often. Because until we doubt something that we think is true that isn't, we won't learn the things that are true. You've heard that old expression, frequently wrong, but not in doubt. I mean, sometimes doubt is a very important thing for us to actually grow in our understanding. So doubt is not always a bad thing. Sometimes it's a very good thing, but it's always serious because it's unstable. 
sooner or later, doubt is going to move to one pole or the other. Either you're going to resolve it and believe, or you're going to be overcome by it and move to unbelief. So that brings up the question, how do we deal with doubt? The easiest way, of course, would be like with Thomas. Jesus appears to him. But you know, it doesn't happen so often. Jesus himself said, blessed are those who believe without seeing. So how is it that we should deal with doubt? I would say first thing we need to do is to maintain our integrity. And I want to tell you a story because I think it, it makes the point I want to make very clearly, but I'm hesitant to tell it to you because it involves another group's religious beliefs, not ours. I'd rather have a good story about Baptists. That would be safe. But the story I'm going to tell is about another group and the way they handled truth claims. And I'm telling it first because it is true of Baptists in some cases, and I'm also telling it because it happens to be true. It happened. So many years ago, I'm teaching a philosophy of religion course at Southwestern Seminary, and I have a student in the class named Anthony. We're going over the whole issue of faith, doubt, unbelief, something in philosophy of religion called epistemology was the subject. It's how you come to know things or think you know things. So we're going through this stuff. Well, it so happened that Anthony was at home in his apartment while we're, while we're going through this material over the course of two weeks. He's at home in his apartment. There's a knock at the door, and he opens the door, and there are two Mormon missionaries standing there. Well, Anthony invites them in, and they begin to have a conversation, and the missionaries tell him about, about how uh, the angel appeared to Joseph Smith and revealed the truth in the Book of Mormon. Uh, contains that truth, and they're sharing what they intend to share from their, their faith. And they were very nice, very polite, very, very kind. And Anthony listened to them. But right at the end, he said, well, how do I know that this is true? And they said to him, well, what you need to do is take the Book of Mormon. We can give you a, book, a copy of the Book of Mormon if you'd like. Take the Book of Mormon at night, kneel by your bed with the Book of Mormon before you, and ask the Holy Spirit to show you if it's true. And if you do that, you'll feel, this is a phrase that's sometimes used within Mormonism, a burning in your bosom. You'll feel this sense that it's true. You'll just know that it's true. And then they said, well, okay, I understand what you're saying, but, but how do I know if I have that experience that it's the Holy Spirit and not the devil? And they were kind of taken aback. They said, oh, no, no, it's the Holy Spirit. You're asking, I realize that, but you know, there are people that have experiences like that that are, have very different convictions. So are they being deceived by the devil? Are you being deceived by the devil? Am I being deceived by the devil? How do I know? How do I distinguish that? They said, well, we'll get back to you. So they left. <laughs> next week, they came back. Now, in class, the very next day, we have class, and Anthony tells us all this. And I have to tell you, it was kind of fun because we're thinking, you know, I'm sure the missionaries went back to church and started telling everybody, oh, listen, 
Listen, we were, we were talking with, two, with this young man who's in seminary to go into Christian ministry, and he was so hungry. He just opened up and listened to us, and we just know the Lord's working on, kind of like we do with people. You know what I'm talking about? So I'm sure they went back and they said all those things. So, so I coached Anthony just in class right there. I said, okay, next time they come, try this. So they came. And, and they started talking about how he needed to pray for the Holy Spirit to tell him the truth. He said, okay, okay, okay. How do I know it's the Holy Spirit? Well, you just have to pray, burning of the bosom. No, but how do I know? He said, here's what I want to know. Is there anything that if you knew it was false, you would cease to be a Mormon? Anything. He said, for example, the Book of Mormon. If I could show you that the claims of this ancient North American civilization are false, that all the archaeology is against it and that there is no evidence for it whatsoever. I'm not saying that you have to admit that I can show you that, but if I could show you that, would you give up your faith? And they, they said, well, you know, you've got to get down on your knees and you've got to pray for the burning of the bosom. And said, no, 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 no. I want to know if there's anything, anything that could falsify your belief. And they said, we'll get back with you. <laughs> so the next week they came back with elders from the local congregation. <laughs> and, and they started sharing and, and Anthony said, well, how do I know it's true? Well, you kneel down by your bed, you pray, there's a burning of the bosom and all the rest. But how do I know, how do I know that's the Holy Spirit and not the devil? How do I know that? I mean, you think that I haven't truly heard from the Holy Spirit? How do I know you're truly hearing from the Holy Spirit? Well, you know, you pray. No, 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 no. I want to know if there is anything that if I could show you it was false, anything in the Book of Mormon, I could show you it was false, would you give up your faith? He said, I would. Anthony, that is. He says, I would if you could show me Jesus Christ wasn't risen from the dead. And he referred to 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, if Jesus wasn't risen, then, then we are, of all people, in a pitiful state. There's no hope for us. We believe that Jesus was risen. If somebody could show me, convince me that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, I'll walk away from Christianity today. I don't think they can. But theoretically, if they could, I would. So Anthony says to them, you know, I would do that with the resurrection. Is there anything, anything at all that if I could show you it was false, that you would you'd give up your faith? And they said, no. And Anthony said, it sounds to me like you're more committed to your belief than you are to truth. When we deal with doubt, we need to maintain our integrity. And let me tell you what is not a way to deal with it. You don't say, oh, well, you just have to have faith. You just have to have faith. That's a whole lot like saying, kneel by your bed and wait for the burning of your bosom. You just have to have faith. Theologians call it fideism, the fancy term for faithism. The idea is that You'll just have faith, and that obliterates every question that anybody has. 
Now, I am not saying that we should go around looking for problems or that we have to have answers to every question. But when a question comes home to you or to somebody else and it's a real question and they're really struggling with it, the answer is not, well, you just have to have faith. Because while you're telling them to take a leap of faith, they want to know, well, where do I leap? Do I leap toward the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Do I leap to First Woodway? Do I leap to Islam? Where do I leap if I'm going to take a leap of faith? The faith has to be grounded on something. We have to have integrity. When I tell you the story about the Mormon missionaries coming to Anthony, it's very easy to say, oh, well, yeah, that's, that's silly. They weren't being rational. But then we'll turn right around as Baptists and do exactly the same thing. We need to have integrity. We need to have integrity in our faith. So nothing I'm, say, what, nothing I'm going to say is meant to bully anyone into just ignoring their doubts. But there is a second thing we need to do besides maintaining our integrity, and that is we need to cross-examine ourselves and our doubts. Sometimes we take our doubts way too seriously because they're rooted not in actual intellectual problems, but in other things. So, for example, sometimes it's rooted in just bad theology. I had a man many years ago who told me that he was raised in church but walked away. Why was that? Well, when I was a teenager, I realized I was gay, and I found out you can't pray the gay away. Well, where did he get the idea that through prayer, you can be set free from all temptation? Not, I'm not saying that you can't overcome temptation. I'm saying, where did he get the idea that Christianity teaches that in this life, we don't face temptation? We do face temptations of all kinds, right? But by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can overcome those things. Bad theology led him to think that the gospel somehow failed. Same thing with a woman who told me one time that I don't believe in God. And I said, well, tell me about this God you don't believe in. And it quickly became clear that she didn't believe in this patriarchal, demanding, almost hostile God. I told her, you know, I don't believe in that God either. You shouldn't believe in that God. That kind of God is offensive to us. So there are lots of reasons why people don't believe. Sometimes it's bad theology, and it may be your doubts are rooted not in real doubt of God's truth, but you're finding it hard to believe something you heard from a preacher or a friend, which may or may not be true. That's the open question. It may also be that your doubts are rooted in social influence. The fact is, if you hang around people who don't believe all the time, it tends to wear off on you. You know, you, you, tend, to, you tend to pick that up. And, and you, you can see it where people, they change their friends and their politics change. Have you ever noticed that? Well, it's the same way. There are people that basically just morph into the beliefs of the people they're hanging around. Social influence can be the origin of those doubts. So can the high cost of faith. You know, it's amazing when 
The teaching of the Bible stands in the way of a romantic relationship you want to pursue or advancing in your career through means that perhaps are are forbidden you. It's amazing how when you want something and the Bible won't, won't give you grounds to pursue it, you begin to doubt what the Bible says. Sometimes the high cost can be the reason. And frankly, there are times when people doubt simply because I think it's a temperamental thing. They just tend to be doubtful about lots of things. I know people that if an idea enters their head, they have this thought, they are absolutely certain it's true just because it's in their head. Do you know anybody like that? Of course, none of us would be like that, but do you know anybody like that? where they have a thought in their head, and because it's a clear thought in their mind, they're sure it must be true. I also know people on the other extreme that have no confidence in their thoughts, no matter what they are. And that's a kind of temperamental thing, and I think some people struggle there. So we need to cross-examine ourselves and our doubts and consider, are these legitimate doubts about some issue where there's a real question, or is something else going to work in me? And then thirdly, let's say it is a real question. You're not sure. How do you make sense of of scientific descriptions of origins and the Bible's description of origins? What What do you do with that? Or how do you make sense? Is God... Is God involved in the world? And why can't I see God? And why don't I hear God? There are all sorts of questions you might have, and you you really doubt those. What do you do? That's the third thing. You seek truth fearlessly. You don't simply try to buttress up your faith. You seek truth. What did Jesus say? John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How am I supposed to follow the truth, the one who is truth, if I don't care about truth? If what I care about is just maintaining whatever beliefs I currently have? No, I want to follow the truth. So I need to be loyal to Christ by being loyal to truth. And Jesus makes a marvelous promise in this regard. He says in John chapter 7, if anyone is willing or wants to do the will of God, that person will know whether my teaching comes from God or from myself. If there is this authentic desire to do the will of God, to find the truth, God's going to lead you. Didn't Jesus say that he had sent the spirit of truth? And in John 16, he says, the spirit of truth will guide us into all truth. And so as Christians, we don't have to be afraid of that. If you have doubts, then you need to inquire. You need to study. You need to ask questions. Pray through it all, asking the spirit to guide you. But don't be afraid of the truth. Let unbelievers bury their head in the sand. Let them avoid the difficult questions. Let them hold on to their truth because they're afraid they'll lose it because in their heart of hearts, they know it's not true at all. Let them do that. We as Christians are not afraid of truth and we seek it because we we do know we follow the one who is truth. Now, for some of us, perhaps 
We're here this morning and we have doubts, but we are seeking. You're here because you do sense this need for God. And, and perhaps you're even to the point where you think that Jesus Christ could help you, that, that he is the Savior. And yet, yet you're not without questions. You're not without doubts. You're not absolutely certain. And so you've held back to this point. You're waiting until it's absolutely certain, and then you'll step out. Well, I am the last person to tell you that if you have real intellectual reasons that you can't quite come to belief, then you, uh, you, know, you shouldn't just make yourself believe. You should, you should explore those things, and I'd be glad to explore them with you. But you also need to know in this world, you never come to perfect truth. That is, you never know without any doubt. That's just the way the world works. Fact is, your life is like a ship that's already launched and is out to sea, and it's going somewhere. It's going somewhere. You can't not choose where it's going. I mean, you can just say, well, you know what? I'm not going to choose. I'm, I'm, I just am not sure where I'm going to go. But then you're going to drift with the current. And that itself is a choice. You see, to doubt the Christian faith is to put faith in something else. And so the fact is you can't avoid making decisions in life. And with every decision, there's some possibility that you'll make a mistake. That's just honest. That's just being honest, isn't it? We don't often talk this way in church, but isn't it true? You could always be wrong. So you may be holding back because you're thinking, I might be wrong. But you need to realize that while you don't decide, you are deciding. You're not in a place of neutrality. When you decide, you, you decide not to decide, you're deciding to not follow Jesus. You're saying no. And that carries its own risk. Are you sure that's the right decision? What I'm getting at here is that in life, the stakes are high. And we have to make the best decision we can following what, what in our honest appraisal is true. And the wise person is one who seeks that truth with all their heart. And the wisest of all are those who pray to God to show them the truth. And when you are convinced of the truth, even though there may be some doubts nagging you, it's time to step out in faith and look for the proof of your faith to come in the living of your faith. See, a lot of times the proof you seek only comes after you step out in faith, not before. It's confirmed as you live it. It's not given to you before you step out. And so I want to invite you to step out. If you know in your heart Jesus Christ is Lord and he's drawing you, you may have doubts nagging at you, but if it's true and you know, you know it's true, I want you to give your life to Christ now. Begin following him now.
And may all of us commit to being people of truth. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know that you are a God of truth. And Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And we want the truth. We want to follow you in truth. Sometimes we struggle with doubt. But Lord, we know, we know that as we seek you, you will lead us in the right way. And Lord, we want to be honest before you and honest with others and honest with ourselves. That's not always easy, but that's what we're asking. And Lord, we pray now for those among us who perhaps have not yet made that decision to step out in faith and follow Jesus Christ. Lord, would you now, by your spirit, help them to take that step, that momentous step, that life-changing step. Help them to see the truth and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.